Hi everyone, Dr. Doran here uh, with episode two of our uh, SWARP podcast. Uh, just want to start off and, and say thank you to everyone who provided some feedback for us from our first podcast. As Matt previously said in the last one, that this is a work in progress, and you know, as as I stated, we're just on number two here, so we're learning as we go and uh, trying to figure out the system and the audio software and so on. So, uh, we're, please, you know, provide suggestions as best you can. I don't think we're going to get to a Joe Rogan style podcast in the very near future, but certainly that would be an ideal that we'd love to achieve. So. Uh, we do thank you for all the feedback, and uh, hopefully you're finding this useful. We are also working to have our podcast put on other platforms, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, uh, services like that. Again, you know, we're very early in the process, so it is something that we're working on. Take a little bit of time until we get to that, but we're working on it. We'll let you know once we have it live on those sites. I just want to comment a little bit of where we're at. Again, you know, still a very unusual time, and sort of still many of us really sort of coming to terms with everything that's going on. Uh, certainly as well, there's tons and tons of changes coming down the pipelines for docs, nurses, paramedics, all kinds of providers. So it's a really busy time with lots of information coming at you. We are trying our best to get the information to you as quickly as possible, as efficiently as possible, and as up-to-date as possible, and trying to make sure that it's the information that's useful to you. So again, any feedback about that is also welcome. Okay, for today's podcast, we have a few topics we'd like to cover. Uh, probably the most pressing issue would be Quick review of sort of uh, some of the changes in the past two weeks, but mainly the ones that you would have seen in memos number one and two that came out. And then also on Monday, memo number three came out with some further changes that we'll get into some detail with Dr. Davis here shortly. Following that, we'll talk a little bit about some of the Ask Mac questions and answers that we have that have come through, particularly the ones that seem to be more pressing or seem to have come up a lot. Uh, we'll try and answer those in some detail and, and provide some further clarification. Um, and then we will sort of round out with a bit of a discussion about something very recent that's come up in the uh, G16 meeting that's ongoing today. So as you know, a lot has been going on in the past few weeks uh, due to this COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and some changes, again, have come out this past week as well. Uh, Dr. Davis, do you want to comment on that and who these changes apply to? Absolutely. Thank you, Sean. So this is in reference to considerations for paramedics managing patients during the COVID-19 pandemic memo that was released by SWARP on Monday, uh, April 6th. And to answer your question, who does this, this, these treatment considerations apply to? Well, this remains unchanged from the previous memo, number two. And basically the verbiage is, regardless of COVID screen, consider applying these additional recommendations and considerations to the paramedic medical directives to all patients with respiratory symptoms or in cardiac arrest. So this does not take into consideration whether the patient is COVID positive or screens positive for COVID-19 or screens negative. This is for all patients with respiratory symptoms or in cardiac arrest. Okay, that's pretty broad. Um, what things remain unchanged uh, since this memo has come out? So yeah, let's start with the easy things. So kind of the things that remain unchanged is the uh, restriction of all nebulized medications, the restriction of endotracheal medications, the restriction of suction via an endotracheal tracheostomy tube unless using a close system suction unit, uh, the use of CPAP, as well as considering the withholding of IN and buccal administration of all medications. And the reason for this is again, is because other routes exist for these, these routes of medications and considering administering IM epinephrine for severe respiratory distress with cough only in the setting of asthma as per the bronchoconstriction medical directive. 
Well, so some pretty broad changes there, and essentially trying to ensure that the aerosolization of particles is not occurring in the back of the trucks or in the exposing hermetics to harm, essentially. Correct. These are these are changes to the the kind of standard directives. However, these 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 remain unchanged from our previous memo number two that was released earlier. Right. Right. Okay. Now, I'd also understand there's some changes in regards to oxygen delivery. Do you think we could discuss some of that as well? Absolutely. I think this makes up a bulk of the, the changes, is the oxygen delivery and airway management. In terms of, of nasal cannula administration, uh, there's the wording, in all cases, do not exceed five liters per minute of oxygen by a nasal cannula. Okay, can I, can I ask a question for yeah. a second? So, we're saying five liters is the max, right? Why is that? What, what's the reason for that maximum number being put on there? Great. So again, you look at different guidelines, you read, you read different numbers, and two numbers that they're basically looking at five liters per minute versus six liters per minute. Anything above six liters per minute is definitely considered high flow delivery. Um, and so again, high flow oxygen delivery is an AGMP. When you look at oxygen delivery via nasal cannula, once you start exceeding five liters per minute, your laminar flow becomes more turbulent. And as a result, you're getting less oxygen delivery the more turbulent flow you have. So the actual incremental benefit between five and six in terms of oxygen delivery is very little. So the decision was to err on the safer side of things and limit it to five liters per minute, which again, guidelines throughout Ontario have also used that number as well. Okay, okay. Now, um, so basically limiting it to five liters per minute maximum for any AGMPs, which is in our last podcast, was an aerosolizing generating medical procedure. And that's what a lot of these changes are really trying to tackle in order to keep everybody safe. Absolutely. All these changes, again, are aimed at trying to reduce the aerosolization of COVID-19 to protect our paramedics, to protect bystanders, other healthcare workers, you know, trying to slow that spread of COVID-19 down. So clearly flow rate is a concern. Now there's other oxygen delivery methods that our paramedics use. Are there any restrictions placed on those other methods? So the, the memo does speak to this and it states, in all cases, high flow oxygen delivery should be avoided unless using oxygen delivery through an SGA or ETT. So this most commonly is going to be, you know, your 100% non-rebreather face mask. This is a high flow system. It's not a contained system and therefore is considered a AGMP. Okay, so we're avoiding using our non-rebreather. What, what options do we have in lieu of that? So in lieu of the non-rebreather, uh, once again, the memo speaks to this. Again, it, the, the wording from it is, in all cases where parent, patients require high concentration oxygen, use high concentration low flow masks with your hydrophobic submicron filter. So there's different uh, masks out there that meet that uh, kind of caveat. Uh, this would, for example, would be your Flow 2 Max, your High Ox masks uh, that we that are used by services throughout the region. I'm sure there's many more out there. So again, speak with your paramedic service leadership and find out which masks you have if you are unsure. Um, there's also discussion too about, well, what about pediatric patients? And again, the recommendation is the same for the pediatric patient population that require high concentration of oxygen. And the language is to use pediatric high concentration, low flow masks with a hydrophobic submicron filter. These are not part of the equipment standards, so not all services will carry them. Uh, but if your service does carry them, then by all means, go ahead and use these as a preferred oxygen delivery method. Okay. 
Now, what about other advanced area procedures as defined in the ALS PCS? Has there been recommendations regarding those? There has been, and this uh, generated quite a bit of discussion at the provincial medical table as to uh, direction regarding these advanced airway procedures. And there's definitely pros and cons to each method, SGA versus endotracheal intubation in terms of airway management. And so the memo, basically the wording around the, the memo is consider in cardiac arrest the use of SGA or an endotracheal tube if available and authorized as options for advanced airways. It talks about the comfort that paramedics have with SGA insertion. If they're comfortable with it, then that should be the preferred airway, and the airway should be inserted as soon as feasible. And there's some language around withholding chest compressions during this time. That's when chest compressions or CPR is deemed to be the AGMP. Chest compressions themselves are not an AGMP, but it's doing chest compressions while doing these advanced airway procedures that make it an AGMP. So if you are going to be inserting the SGA or tube, then it's important to hold chest compressions. Again, all airway strategies are a potential risk to paramedics and should be considered and balanced. So again, this is where you're going to really have to use clinical judgment um, because these are the highest risk procedures that will be done in the pre-hospital setting regarding the AGMPs. So I know the Swart Medical Council endorsed the superglottic airway as the airway intervention of choice. Why was that? So yes, myself, yourself, Dr. Valdis, Dr. Bradford, and Dr. Evie had this discussion uh, regarding, you know, the preferred airway strategy, SGA versus intubation. And again, as I said, there was a lot of discussion about this at the provincial level, and there's no absolute best answer for this question. And I can explain the kind of approach that we took here in the Southwest as to why we came up with the preferred route or of airway management is an SGA, and that's something we strongly recommend for ACP uh, paramedics in the region is to utilize the SGA over intubation and for our uh, para PCP paramedics in the region to utilize the uh, SGA over uh, BVM in the cardiac arrest patient. Again, there's multiple reasons, but really little evidence to guide us as to which is the better airway option. So we took it a step back. Let's pretend that there's not a pandemic going on. What does the literature currently show? And you've heard all these discussions about airways too in the PART trial, looking at intubation versus SGA airway management in terms of cardiac arrest patients. And is there a superior method for managing the airway in terms of increasing survival? And really, when you look at the evidence, there's no difference between SGA and intubation when it comes to cardiac arrest survival. However, if you kind of look deeper into the evidence, the recommendation is that if you have a high first pass success rate, then intubation should be the airway strategy of choice. And a high intubation rate, we're talking greater than 90% on your first pass success rate. In those cases, then yes, intubation should be the, the preferred route of airway management and cardiac arrest. However, if it's below that, then SGA should be your first-line airway management tool of choice in cardiac arrest. When we look at the data in Southwest region, we do not have a greater than 90% first-pass success rate. Pre-hospital intubations are a difficult airway, and we've always, we've always recognized that, that pre-hospital intubation is a difficult airway. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the environment is very different than the more controlled environment that we have in the emergency department. You know, better positioning we might have, better lighting, more support, more backup. So there is no question that uh, pre-hospital airway management is very challenging, and we recognize that. Uh, and going into a global pandemic, 
I think basically we have to recognize that some changes are, are, are being made to make sure that you're as safe as possible and the people around you are safe as well. Now, I know that other hospitals and other systems are also changing some of their practices when it comes to intubation of patients, particularly when there's concern of COVID-19. Could you comment on that a little bit for us, please? For sure. So again, that evidence is pre-pandemic time. Now you add on the layer of pandemic and that difficult airway becomes an even more difficult intubation in the pre-hospital setting. So yes, we did look at what other organizations are doing. And across Canada, uh, in BC, they've actually restricted intubation for all paramedics who were authorized to do intubation. I spoke to medical directors in the Alberta Health System, and they have a very similar message that we are delivering here too, that the SGA is the preferred route of airway management in cardiac arrest. The other evidence, too, when it comes to how to manage the airway, you look at other systems across North America, across the world, and there are some systems that are utilizing intubation as their preferred airway management strategy. But when you look at these systems, such as Medic One in Seattle, when you look at the UK air ambulance system, the Australian air ambulance systems, these are very different systems than what we have here in Ontario. They utilize rapid sequence intubation for the air ambulance systems. They have highly skilled teams that practice these airway procedures over and over and over again daily uh, simulation sessions. They have physicians on the team. They, they use RSI. They use video laryngoscope. So a very different system uh, than what we have here in Ontario. So it's hard to extrapolate that method and put it here in Ontario as suggesting that intubation should be the, the first line system. And again, just looking at the emergency departments uh, in terms of their airway management strategies right now. Oh, there's been huge changes there. Recognizing how high risk these potential intubations are, um, complete specific intubation kits for potential COVID patients have been designed to uh, change our process so that it's safer, it's faster, it's done in a negative pressure room. So um, clearly we know this is one of the highest risk procedures you could do during this pandemic. And so that's we're trying to make sure that the safest procedures are being done so everybody is as safe as possible. Absolutely. In the emergency department, it's, it's been totally protocolized. In fact, there's intubation teams now working in, the, in many hospitals uh, using video laryngoscope, uh, enhanced PPE, as you said, in the negative pressure rooms. You know, the mantra of there is no emergency right now. So they're donning all their PPE, taking it step by step by step through these protocols. They're practicing day in, day out. Uh, kits that are all prepared. So again, a very, very different system, but recognizing how dangerous intubation is, probably one of the most dangerous procedures that may aerosolize COVID-19. I, I just want to reiterate that message. I've heard that a little bit, and we've talked a little bit about it as well. In a pandemic, there is no emergency. And I think that's really important to remember that, that when you're in these high-risk procedures, it's important to properly protect yourself and take the time to do that. I mean, we, you know, we don't want to be rushing that because if a mistake occurs at that point, that could be really dangerous. So again, reiterate that message in a pandemic, there is no emergency. You have to keep yourself safe. It's really important. So with the SGA, again, there's pros and cons to it. We recognize that, but based when we look at all this evidence, or I shouldn't say evidence, but kind of opinion, we don't have a lot of evidence when it comes to which strategy is better. Our medical council highly suggests that all paramedics in cardiac arrest utilize the SGA as the airway procedure of choice. Okay, so 
recommending the SGA as the airway procedure of choice, if a decision is made to place the airway, do you have any specific guidance around that and that procedure? So all chest compressions, unlike previous teachings and practice in regards to airway management and chest compressions, you never stop chest compressions because chest compressions were more important than airway management. Given the pandemic setting, there is guidance in the memo that says consider withholding CPR while attempting the insertion of the advanced airway. Okay. Now, the questions always come up then, what about airway management in non-cardiac arrest patients for ACPs? Great question, Sean. So the exact same principles apply to this patient population as well. And the direction is for ACPs, consider withholding orotracheal intubation or SGA insertion unless the patient is in cardiac arrest. So again, because these patients still have all their reflexes, coughing, trying to intubate them or insert an SGA is kind of going to be even more dangerous at this point because now those reflexes are going to allow for coughing and aerosolization of COVID-19. Okay, so a lot of changes obviously, Matt. I guess another question is, I understand there's some changes to the opioid toxicity medical directive as well. You are correct, Sean. So the, the, the change here is naloxone may be administered without the requirement of the inability to adequately ventilate. So no longer do you need to beg that patient and have that be ineffective before giving naloxone. You can take that step out of the equation and administer naloxone without the need to manually ventilate with the bag mask. Uh, that being said, again, if the patient responds to you know, nasal cannula oxygenation and uh, you know, the respirate is still above 10, then naloxone is not needed. This is, again, just for that requirement of the inability to adequately ventilate. Now, are there other considerations for both ACPs and PCPs in regards to oxygenation and or ventilation? So again, thinking about manual ventilation with a, a mask and a bag, this again is an AGMP. So there's language around this that says, consider withholding manual ventilation in any spontaneously breathing patient. And this is where a bit of clinical judgment is going to have to come into play. Are there other considerations for both ACPs and PCPs in regards to oxygenation and ventilation? So in these cases, kind of a stepwise approach you know, one could take is applying that high concentration, low flow mask, using a jaw thrust or a chin lift PRN to see if that helps oxygenation. If the oxygenation is improving, then great, you're, you're doing your job. If it's you know in the mid 80s, and you're doing this and it's maintaining, then that is absolutely fine. If you find there's continued deterioration or no improvement as per your clinical judgment, you can utilize other BLS airway procedures, trying the oral airway, the nasal airway to see if that improves oxygenation. Again, if that's doing the trick, then continue on with that. If there's deterioration or no improvement, then you can consider BVM at that time. So if you're providing manual ventilations with your BVM, remember the most important thing is obtain a good tight seal as best you can to prevent aerosolization of the COVID-19. You're gonna be in your PPE, so you have half protection, uh, but again, we wanna just try to minimize those AGMPs where we absolutely can. So the need to withhold ventilations when using BVM and transporting a patient through DD has been previously discussed. Can you discuss how this treatment change has been expanded? Absolutely. So the this has kind of been expanded to also include the fact that long-term care homes, so if you're transporting patients through the hallways there, uh, hospital hallways, or other enclosed public buildings, 
where people may not have the appropriate PPE on. So the direction is consider temporary pause in manual ventilation with BVM uh, while maintaining a tight seal as well with the SGAs when transporting the patient through a long-term care home, hospital hallway, or other enclosed public building. If there's a long extrication time, that's again when you're going to have to use your clinical judgment, the patient may require some ventilation at that point. Just make sure there's no one around who in the vicinity isn't in the proper PPE when you are applying those ventilations to the patient. Okay. Now, any other BLS-PCS considerations that have been recommended by the MAC and have been approved? So three here, consider donning appropriate PPE for all airway procedures, all cardiac arrests, and all patients with respiratory symptoms or hypoxia, meaning an SpO2 of less than 92%. Consider applying an inline filter as close to the patient as possible when providing manual ventilation, and consider pre-alerting receiving facilities such as hospitals, bypass centers, maternity wards, etc., if the patient's COVID-19 screen is positive or if the patient is known to have COVID-19. Okay, thank you very much, Matt. That's a lot of information we covered there. Um, I'm sure some questions will arise about this. We certainly want to answer as many of those as we can. I mean, a lot of that's going to be coming through on Ask Mac, and we've already received a whole bunch of questions on Ask Mac that we've currently drafted answers for, and we're going to try and provide some answers for you. Absolutely. We hope that this session answers some of your questions. Uh, looking through the Ask Mac questions, I think it will answer some of those. Um, and then I believe on your next segment, Dr. Dorn, you have some discussion of some of these Ask Mac questions as well. So we'll get to some of them for our audience. Really want to help out in this situation. We're trying to keep the messaging as efficient as possible while still giving the information, but trying not to overload as well. Matt, thank you so much for spending the time to answer these questions today and to cover some of the recent changes that have gone on uh, in the pre-hospital world. Thank you all. Okay, well now we're going to uh, go over to answer some of the Ask Matt questions that have been coming up over the last couple of weeks. Again, there is a site for this, particularly for the COVID-19 section. We have an Ask Mac section specifically dedicated to that. In that section, we're trying to answer any questions that you have with a turnaround time of about 48 hours, give or take. Uh, please understand it's, it's a busy time. We're doing our best. Today, we have Dr. Valdis here joining us to talk about some of those questions that have been coming up over the past couple of weeks. Hey, Sean. Hey, hey everybody. So I guess we'd start right off then with the first question. I have a bit of a script here for me. I'll try and keep to it as best as possible. I guess the question has been coming up about clarification regarding bronchoconstriction. So in the document that we have, it states that we should consider IM administration of epinephrine for severe respiratory distress with cough and a history of asthma. It also states that we should consider using NVI salbutamol only for severe respiratory distress without a cough. Are we considering these two separate cases for use of these medications and not giving them concurrently during this pandemic? Thanks, Sean. So these questions are literally cut and paste from the Ask Mac, just to give you a sample of what's out there. So the answer to this question is, if there is a cough, severe respiratory distress, and asthma, so must have a history of asthma, then you can give the IM epi up to two doses. However, if somebody has a history of bronchoconstriction, severe respiratory distress, and a cough, then they are not to receive the salbutamol MDI. So this is a big change from the non-COVID days in that if somebody has a cough, you don't want to be putting an MDI in their face because they're going to cough more upon you and spread the virus. So thank you very much for this question and bringing out that there is a treatment difference for people if they have a cough versus if they do not have a cough with this new COVID pandemic. 
Okay, and I have another sort of follow-up question here too. I think that was kind of buried in there. Since we're at community spread now, or at least that's what the Chief Medical Officer of Health in Ontario is saying, um, should uh, any patients with respiratory symptoms wear a surgical mask? That's a great question, and the answer to that is yes. So any patient that you have that has any respiratory distress should be wearing a surgical mask. Okay, great. Thanks, Lauren. All right, let's go on to another question here. So then we have another question that came through our COVID Ask Mac section. Who can receive IM epinephrine under the new COVID-19 considerations? Ah, uh, yes, this question's come up a number of times. So there still seems to be some confusion, so let's get that out of the way. So in the setting of bronchoconstriction, only patients with severe respiratory distress, with cough, and in the setting of asthma can receive IM epi up to those two doses. So this IM epi without a cough and severe respiratory distress does not apply to patients with COPD, CHF, or any other form of respiratory distress, only asthma. So specifically, asthma is kind of probably the crux of this entire sort of decision. Bingo. Okay, okay. Um, another question that's come up a little bit, and I think we talked about this previously with Dr. Davis, but still worth driving this message home, and this is surrounding airway management in these cases. And the question is, why is a supraglottic airway preferred over endotracheal intubation during the pandemic? And a follow-up question to that would be, will I be penalized if I have to intubate someone? Ah, I gotcha. So I won't go into the depths of the SGA over ECT, because it sounds like you guys have already talked about that. A little little refresher wouldn't hurt to okay. know, brief to the, to the point would be helpful. All right, so I'll try to keep it brief and to the point. So we know that for areas where the first pass intubation success rate great or less than 90% that an SGA, supraglottic airway, actually decreases mortality. So in our area, we do have a first pass rate that is less than 90%. Therefore, supraglottic airway insertion reduces mortality. So that's without the pandemic. With the pandemic, we know that intubating is one of the most dangerous things that you can do for yourself in spreading the virus. So Specifically in hospitals, this has been addressed, and there's a number of safety measures that are in place that unfortunately you cannot be afforded in the pre-hospital world. So some of the things that are done in hospital to help mitigate this risk include having specific intubation teams with very experienced intubators. So you're thinking anesthetists that every single day of their life are intubating multiple people, and they are coming in and doing all of the airway procedures and all of the intubations throughout the hospital. As well, in hospital, you have negative pressure rooms. You have the ability to do an RSI with a paralytic, which then further reduces aerosol risk and increases first pass success. And there are suggesting the use of video laryngoscopy instead of direct laryngoscopy. So this distances the intubator from the airway of the patient in their way, and therefore from the direct line of aerosolization. So instead of having to stick your face directly in the viral vortex, you're at least a little bit far away with the with the video laryngoscopy. So with regards to the will I be penalized, so there is still room within the directive that if the person needs to be intubated, so with the new directive, they must be in cardiac arrest, and you are unsuccessful with the supraglottic airway, and or there are airway considerations, there are five of them specifically that are contraindicated for supraglottic airway, that you can consider ETT. Make sure that you consider these when you're making this decision and make sure to document so that way we know that you've taken into consideration all of the risks and all of the benefits and just look out for yourself 
and your patients. So we don't want to penalize everybody or anybody. We just want to keep you guys safe. So for the briefest of summaries, SGA preferred to protect you from the viral vortex. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. could go with that. Okay. Okay, so ASMAC COVID-19 question number four. Is administration of high-flow oxygen considered an aerosol-generating medical procedure? And if so, should we be wearing an N95 mask? So a non-rebreather is high-concentration, high-flow, and therefore is considered an aerosol-generating medical procedure, or AGMP. Therefore, appropriate PPE, including the N95 respirator, should be worn. Additionally, this is why the latest OBAG recommendation suggested that nasal thumbs should only be used to a max flow rate of 5 liters per minute. After that, use a mask with a hydrophobic submicron filter with a low flow and high concentration. Following this, high flow is to be reserved only for those patients in cardiac arrest, and in this case we're using a supraglottic or maybe an endotracheal tube and of course appropriate PPE, including that N95 respirator for this AGMP. Okay, thank you. So question number five, do the new indications for oxygenation and airway procedures only apply to COVID positive patients? Great question. So with each of the different memos, there's been a change in which patients are considered. So now the considerations apply to all patients with respiratory symptoms and or those in cardiac arrest. All right, and I guess now on to some more practical issues surrounding the COVID pandemic and, and how this applies to some of our paramedics. Um, one of the Ask Mac COVID-19 questions was, are ACPs still required to complete 24 hours of CME for 2020 given the COVID pandemic? Thanks, Ron. So as of right now, the CME requirement has not changed for ACPs. We do appreciate that social distancing and COVID has changed the ability of courses and conferences to go on. However, this social distancing is a fantastic opportunity to take advantage of some social distancing friendly activities. So you can see our CME approval chart on the website for some pre-approved activities. Some suggestions that we'll give you here would include some journal study, lecture review, including podcast review. Little plug. Just a little plug. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, also, as highlighted in the latest LINCS newsletter, the new uh, recommendation for the Ontario Telemedicine Network. So I suggest you head over to that LINCS newsletter to look at the specific details for this, but essentially it is thousands of podcasts or medical rounds that are on numerous topics that can be of interest to you. So go ahead and look at those. And we will keep you advised of any changes to this requirement as this dynamic situation evolves, but for now, same 24 hours apply. Okay, that's great, Lauren. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Um, as we said, keep bringing the ASMAC questions in. We're going to try and answer them as quickly as we can. Uh, bear with us. It takes a bit of time. There's a lot happening, so if we're a little bit delayed, we do apologize, but we're trying to get to all of them. And when we continue with the podcast in the future, we'll try and answer some more like this and, uh, as we go forward as well, because I think it's really helpful to sort of go through some of the big questions that are popping up frequently out there. Okay, well, again, thank you, Dr. Valdis. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate you taking the time today. Take care. And now we're going to go into a totally improvised section of our Ask Mac COVID-19 questions and introduce, again, Dr. Valdis. <laughs> So essentially, there's a G16 meeting going on as we speak here in the office, um, and just some questions have come up uh, from that meeting 
that we thought it might be helpful to just answer them right now so we're as updated as possible. So the first question that comes up in, uh, just in this recent meeting is, with the superglottic airway devices, is there any specific thing to really consider doing and not forget about that may be easily overlooked that we should be doing? Great. Uh, so what you can do is tape or cover over the suction port when you're inserting the SGA and keep that covered in order to reduce the particles coming back at you from that suction port. Yes, again, avoiding the viral vortex. Yes. Yes, okay, all right. Uh, another question that came up um, was the use of nitroglycerin. And are we still doing that? Great question. So that actually has come up in our own ASMAC as well. So sublingual administration of nitro is still a go and is not considered an aerosol-generating medical procedure. So still give that sublingual nitro, and you don't have to wear an N95 respirator while administering that medication. Okay, perfect. Again, thanks, Dr. Valdis, for answering more questions on sure. such, such short notice. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Take care. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening today, uh, for those that you have, have listened. Um, we hope that the information provided in this podcast uh, was useful for you. Um, and it's something that you can translate into your practice. The important take-home message from all of these changes is that given the current pandemic that's going on, um, a bit of a shift in how we think and approach our patients. Uh, we certainly want to continue providing the best patient care we possibly can under the circumstances, but also we need to very carefully ensure that our healthcare providers and our paramedics are safe in providing that care. Please continue sending us feedback. It's really helpful to help guide sort of what we want to do for future episodes, um, what sort of topics are, are of interest to people uh, that are working in the trucks and out there in the field. And so it's very helpful for us. So once we have sorted out which platforms we're going to be uh, adding for our podcast, we certainly will let you know when those uh, services are live for us. And thank you for everything that you're doing out there. You're doing a great job looking after your patients really, really well. And please stay safe during all of this.